0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good news with the world.
1: All right, this morning, if you have a Bible or electronic device, I encourage you to take it out and turn with me to the book of First Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning, so go ahead and turn there. Love the... Sounds of little voices, so sweet. All right, I got a question for you this morning as you're, you're turning there. Not really a question, but just more of, a, more of a thought. Wouldn't it be great if you could go to the internet and trust everything that you read and see? Wouldn't that be great? Like if you could just like, you know, I got this question. So you're like, Google... You're like, search bar, you're like, I wonder, you know, or you're going through social media and you're like, I, I just wish everything there we could trust. But, you know, that's not reality, right? It, I, don't, I don't know how many times this past year that you, you go online and you're like, so-and-so, is, some celebrity has passed away. And then your heart for a moment, you're like, oh, I'm going to miss them. And then like 30 minutes later, you're Googling some other thing and you find out that it's a hoax, that it's fake, the person's really alive. Right, has that ever happened to you? I know for me, like in the last year, I've mourned Dolly Parton's death about 65 times. (laughs) (laughs) But this morning, I I can tell you from the internet, uh, she's alive and well, um, according to the internet. But wouldn't that be great? Right, but the challenge is we live in a world where we have a very difficult time where we have to do work to discern between what's truth and what's false. Not everything out there is true, right? There there are people out there that go online or use social media to actually spread misinformation. Can you believe that? People actually do that. Like, they know in their own mind that what they're saying is false, but they put it out there, maybe because they want to get likes or maybe because they want to get notoriety, whatever, I, I don't know. But I do know That this is the season in history that as believers, we can't sleepwalk through life. Do not believe everything that you read. Do not believe everything that you hear because there are those out there seeking to destroy. Seeking to bring division. Seeking to bring a falseness to this life. And we've got to be people that really think through what it is that we believe and what we know to be true. You know, even in the age of the internet, I'm thankful that we don't need the internet to discern truth. I'm thankful that God has given us his word so that we can know between what is true and what is false. God has given us in his word that we have everything for life in godliness in here. We can know God and we can know what God requires of us. And we can know how to have a relationship with God because of his word. And the word needs to be a vital part of our lives. Today we're continuing our series entitled Essentials, Why Truth Matters. We're looking at the basic essential truths of what it means to be a believer. What are the basic bare bone doctrines that are essential for us to be a believer or to be a Christian? And these essential beliefs that if we don't hold to them, if we do not believe these essential beliefs, then we are not believers. We may be something else, but you're not a follower of Jesus Christ unless you understand and uphold to these foundational doctrines. In the series, we've been walking through the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed was a tool that the early church used to disciple new believers. It was a, a tool that they used. It was a statement that they used that came from Scripture to help us understand what we believe about Scripture. And so in this series, we're using the Apostles' Creed. And we're showing in Scripture where those statements come from. And we've been doing this for the past several weeks. And so far as we've been walking for this series, we've declared a couple things. We've declared that to be a believer, it is essential that you have belief in God. Not only that you believe in a God, but that you believe in the God. That there's only one God who exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And each of these are co-equal, co-eternal. They're one, but they're distinct in nature. We also know that this one God is is supremely powerful above all things. He is the creator God. We also believe and have declared that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, who became fully man, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We've declared this past Friday, we looked at declaring that Jesus Christ suffered, was crucified, he died, and he was buried. So far, that's what, those, those are the beginning, the, the foundation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And in my experience, in my, my years of ministry, and my years of talking with people, I, I meet a ton of people that say, okay, I can affirm those things. I believe that there's a God. I believe that you, you can't look at all of creation and say there's no creator. There are a lot of people that believe in God. And there are many, many people that believe in Jesus. They're like, yeah, I believe Jesus was a person. I believe that he, he uh, maybe he was God. I, I, can, I, can, uh, uh, I can affirm that. And they're like, I can even affirm the virgin birth. I, I don't know how it happened, but I can believe that. And there, there are many, many people that believe that. But that doesn't make you a follower of Christ, just believing those things. Because there's an, a, an aspect of the uh, statement that we're going to look at today that has become a stumbling block to so many, that keeps them outside of the faith, and that reality is the resurrection. As we continue the Apostles' Creed this morning, this is what the statement says. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. See, there are many people that, that can, can give an affirmation of the person of Christ. Right? They may even give the assertion that he was the Messiah. But sometimes we come to his resurrection and that confounds people. It becomes a massive stumbling block to people. Why? Because experiencing or seeing a resurrection is not part of our natural experience. Right, what what we know and what we experience every single day is that people die and they don't come back to life. We we see and we walk through the separation of our loved ones, and though we wish that they would come back, they don't come back, and death is final. Right? We no longer get to have conversations with them, they no longer get to celebrate Easter with them, we no longer get to do things with them and share memories with them. They're gone. And so it's our experience that we have to walk through the death of loved ones. I've never seen anyone come back to life. Especially after three days. And so this is a difficult thing for many people to to get beyond. And today I want us to spend time looking at the reality of the resurrection. As, As Paul comes to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what Paul is doing in the passage today is. There's this understanding that in the early church in Corinth, there was a a group of people that were coming in that began to deny the resurrection or began to question the reality of the resurrection. So Paul wants to set the record straight. He's he's like, guys, you need to understand where the resurrection fits into God's plan of redemption. The resurrection was not just something that happened to a man in one place and time. It's not just the story of, of one man who died coming back to life. No, it was the beginning of a new era. A change in all things. A change in human history. This is a big deal. And so we go to chapter 15 and first we want to see that Paul makes it a big deal. In verse 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Right? Paul wants to make it emphatically clear that Christ died and he came back to life according to Scripture. Why? What he, he's saying that is that he's saying this was a promise from God that God promised that this would happen and that life as his plan for redemption begins to unfold and continues to unfold. Christ had to die and he had to come back in order for true salvation and true life to be experienced. So we have the promises of God. Then Paul goes on and gives us the importance of the resurrection for our faith. Skip on down to verse 14. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, then you and I are wasting our time right now. We should go do something different. We should be out fishing or we should be out eating or we should doing anything, do anything else than be here if Christ has not been raised. But if Christ has not been raised, you also have no hope because you're still stuck in your sins. We're still slaves to this dying body. We're still stuck in this world of death. But Christ promised or God promised. And God is a promise maker. And God is a promise keeper. He's never, ever failed. But maybe God's promises aren't enough for you. Right? Paul, Paul understands that. He says, hey, guess, guess what, guys? God did promise this. And if that's not enough for you, like, look to the eyewitnesses. Right? Look, look in verse 5 through 8. He says, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Now what Paul is saying here, he's like, hey guys, you gotta believe, if you don't trust God's promises from his word, trust the eyewitnesses of people. Like when Jesus came back, he didn't come back in obscurity. No, Jesus was born in obscurity, but when he came back to life, he let everyone know. Specifically, he needed to allow his disciples to know that he was alive because they were going to be bearers of this message. And he wanted to make sure that they knew that they weren't going to give their lives for a lie. And so the book of Acts starts off and it says that Jesus appeared, but then he was with his disciples for 40 days and gave them many convincing proofs of his resurrection. Jesus did not resurrect a spirit Jesus was not a figment of their imagination. Jesus came back in bodily form. And in John, at the end of John, when um, John reinst- or Jesus reinstates John, it says that he sat down and he ate fish with them. Spirits don't eat fish. Right? It's got no place for it to go. Right? Jesus was in bodily form. Jesus came back. You could touch him. You could hug him. You could hold him. You could have a conversation with him because he was alive. So the eyewitnesses give account to this. The resurrection happened. Or maybe that's not enough for you. Maybe you're like, "Yeah, I don't know. Like in this world is just disinformation. How can we trust anybody? I'm like, I trust the Word of God. But maybe that's not enough for you. Maybe the biblical evidence or the eyewitnesses aren't enough. Well maybe, let's go outside the Bible. Just for a moment, and I know that's dangerous territory because we are Woodside Bible Church. The Bible's our middle name, and we care about the Bible. But just for a moment, we, we know the Bible reveals Jesus and tells us about the resurrection, but let's just go outside of that for a moment. You see, there was a historian, a Jewish historian named Flavius Josephus. He was born in Jerusalem four years after the crucifixion of Jesus. His life's work was to chronicalize Jewish history. So he gave his life over to this work. And so in one of his works called The Jewish Antiquities, he, his, his aim was to reveal or unveil Hebrew history from the time of creation to the start of the great war with Rome in 66 AD. So that's what he set out to do. Chronicalizing, apart from scripture, Chronicalize the history of God's people, and he does. So he's a source outside of the Bible, and what's interesting about his, his life is that because of his, his life, he lived in close proximity to the life of Jesus. There were many still alive that could help him piece together the actual events that happened with Jesus's life. I wanted to read to you what he, what he wrote. Now, this is a translation from his original but this is what he writes. He says, At this time, there was a wise name, wise man called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion, And that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah. Concerning whom the prophets have reported wonders. And this tribe of the Christians, so named after him, has not disappeared to this day. A historian, a non-believing historian, does not deny the resurrection as he's doing the work of trying to recount the story. He even goes so far as to say, hey, this guy might've even been the Messiah. This is a Jewish guy, right? That was brought up in the ways of Judaism and he knew that the Messiah was to come. And right now he's not refuting the fact that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. But then he's giving credence to the fact that his disciples saw it and saw him alive. There's biblical and historical proof that Jesus resurrected from the dead. You're like, okay, pastor, that's great. Uh, So what's the big deal? So what, he resurrected from the dead. My question to you is, really? (laughs) Okay, okay, Maybe, maybe, maybe you need some help. So what we're gonna do over the next few minutes is I'm gonna give you three reasons why the victory of Jesus over death changed everything. Like, why is it so important? Why does the resurrection of Jesus change time and human history? And I pray that just for a moment, you listen intently. Because remember, on Friday, we talked about how on the cross, what Jesus did is he defeated the demands of the law and sin. That's what he did, right? You and I are sinful. You and I have broken God's law. You and I deserve punishment. And what happened is on the cross, the punishment that was due you and me was placed on Christ. So he did all of that. Right, but that is, that's not the end of the story because there's still death we have to deal with. Death is still a reality in, in our lives. So in the res- resurrection, we see that Jesus defeats death and what that does is it changes everything for us. So what does Jesus' victory mean for me? I want you to internalize the truth today into your own life. Right, what Jesus did years ago does impact and can impact your life Today. And there are three ways we're going to see that today. First, Jesus' victory means all believers will be made alive. Look at me in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Again, Paul is continuing to press in to highlight the reality of the resurrection, that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and his resurrection from the dead is a deposit or a security for those who are in Christ that we too can be made alive. So the power of Christ's resurrection is more more than one man's triumph over the grave and death. At the heart of the resurrection Is the idea of this first fruits, that his resurrection is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep? Now, let me explain that just for a moment. Paul is kind of going back to using an analogy of the Old Testament practice. In the Old Testament, we see this the gift of the first fruits was this. When the harvest came in, those that were followers of God would take the very first portion of the harvest, their first fruit. And they would come before God and they would give that to the Lord as an offering. Knowing that it, the first fruit was the beginning of a greater harvest. Right? It was, it was the, the beginning of opening the doors for something greater to come because the first fruit was just a small portion. And Jesus' resurrection, what he's saying here is Jesus' resurrection from the dead was the beginning of something greater specifically to those that have fallen asleep. Now, Paul is referring to those that have died, those that have experienced death, those that will experience death. Christ's coming and his resurrection is the first fruit. It's the opening of the door of this greater blessing, this new life that is possible. It is an amazing thing. It's the first thing that in order for man to truly experience life, Jesus had to rise from the dead. So not only was Jesus' resurrection providing the promise that we would be made alive, Jesus in his resurrection fixes what was broken through Adam. Remember back in, in the garden we see that, that God had given Adam and Eve like all kinds of freedom. Like you care for the garden, you care for one another, but just don't eat of this fruit. And guess what they did? They willfully chose to disobey God and they thought they were doing right in their own mind, so they ate of the fruit. And what that did is it caused fellowship with God to be broken. Heaven and earth were split. For before that, man had perfect fellowship with God. The Bible even tells that Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the day with God. Imagine that. And when sin entered in the world, that was broken. And one of the results of that was Death. Death became a reality. Death came into being through the disobedience of man. And death from that moment on has been a curse that you and I have lived with. We will all die. No matter how good you are, no matter how much money you have, you can't put off your day of death. There is a, a time on the calendar of history where you will cease to exist. And no one can cheat that. And that's because we have the curse of Adam. But just as everything was broken through one man, now we see through one man and his work of obedience, his work of righteousness, his work of sacrifice, through him now we can be made alive for those of us that are in Christ. Christ has done the mighty work of setting us free. He gives us the experience of true life. Now let me explain to you the difference between death in Adam and life in Christ. I'm going to use an agricultural analogy. Let's say for a moment you go to the store and you pick up a pack of seeds. Let's say you pick up a pack of tomato seeds. Now you take out one of those seeds and it's small and all of that. And let's say you just put it on the shelf at your house. What's going to happen to that seed? Well, eventually it's going to dry up. And then it's going to become dust. Right? That's an example of what life is like under the curse of Adam. We, we don't really ever actually really experience life. All we're doing is dying. Right? And it may, some of us may, it may take 80 years for us to die. It may take two years for us to die. We, I, I, it's a different amount of time. But we're like that seed that has no life. But you take that same seed. And you put that seed in something else. You trust that seed into something else. You put it into some soil. You water it and you expose it to the sun. And guess what's going to happen? That tomato bush is going to grow. And it's going to produce tomatoes and tomatoes and tomatoes. You're going to have so many tomatoes and if you, if you care for it well, that tomato bush is going to take over your whole yard because what's going to happen in the fall is the tomatoes are going to drop and then they're going to decompose and they're going to be in the soil too and they're going to grow and eventually your whole backyard will be full of tomatoes. See the difference? And in, in a similar way, life in Christ. If you are not in Christ, you are not experiencing life you're experiencing death. And we know this the older we get, right? As you sit, as you've been sitting for a while, you stand up, what does your body begin to do? It's the groan of death. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) you're not getting younger, right? body's like, oh, I need something. What, you, what those groans are for is someone to come and save you. Your body is decaying. So you're not experiencing life. But according to this passage, Christ's resurrection provides an opportunity for those that are in Christ to experience life. Now you may say for yourself, wait a minute. How do I get in on this? How do I get in Christ? How 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 do I do that? How do I go from the shelf to being put into the soil so that I can have life? Well I'm gonna tell you. Begins with this. First, you must understand and acknowledge the fact that you are a sinner. You have to acknowledge in your heart and in your mind that you're a rebel against God and that you have the potential for real evil inside. No matter how good you are, you have the potential. No matter how moral you are. Like take account of your thoughts this week. How good of a person are you really? If we could somehow take all of your thoughts and all of your feelings and display them on the screen today from just this past week, how would you do? Right, Probably not very good. right? So first you have to acknowledge you're not good. You have to acknowledge that. And when we do this, what we understand is we, we begin life, we begin on this path towards death and destruction. So when we're on this path towards death and destruction, now you know that you're not good. And so you have to acknowledge that. That's the start. But then what you do after you acknowledge that is you repent of that. That means you Turn. Instead of looking to yourself as the source of hope and the source of life, you turn to Jesus. And your eyes gaze upon him and you see him for his work and what he's done. For on the cross, he took your punishment and your penalty. He did all the work. So your eyes turn from yourself and you turn to him. And then when you look to him, you confess. Say, Lord, I'm sinful, but I trust in your work on the cross. We come to him as Savior and Lord. Now, it's got to be both of those. It's got to be both of those together. You can't just come to Jesus and say, I want you to be, I want you to save me from my sin. Right? You, you, what it means to not only come to him is acknowledge that you're a sinner, but he comes in and saves you. But when you come to him, you have to give over control of your life. You have to say, okay, Lord, I made a mess. Everything I touch, like, is total ruin. So let me come to you. I want to give you my life so no longer my will be done, but your will be done. That's the same thing that Jesus did in the garden. Right? Jesus said, Lord, let this cup pass from me if it's possible, but if not, not my will, but yours. And it's this place of surrender. When you come to surrender, and your trust and your hope and your faith is in Christ, that's when you are in Christ. Right? When your only hope for salvation is in Christ, that's when God takes you from, from the wall and he puts you in the soil, and then you begin to grow. Right? Do, do you remember what Jesus or what God told uh, Adam and Eve in the garden to do? He said, Be fruitful and multiply. Right? We're supposed to live and we're supposed to have life, but it's only found in Christ. So today, if you're here and you've never come to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can do that today. Or maybe you're here and you'd like to talk to someone about that. If you've got a bulletin, what I encourage you to do is take off that tear-off sheet, write your name on it, and then check the box that says, I want to talk to someone about being saved, and put it in the, the collection boxes on the back or give it to someone at the Welcome Center, and someone will be in touch with you this week so that you can know. And you can have life. But quickly, let's look at the two other victories. The two other blessings that come as the beginning of the resurrection. Two, at the moment of resurrection, two other great things began to be put into motion. The second is Jesus' victory means all enemies will be defeated. Look at me in verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then as his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So, what are the enemies that need to be destroyed? Well, if we look at the, the world we live in today, there are enemies that are the things that keep us from knowing God, those things have to be defeated. And the three things that we see most, according to Scripture, is Satan, sin, and death. Those are the things that have to be defeated in order for us to be made right with God. Jesus has to defeat these enemies. Jesus must defeat them in order for the kingdom of God to reign forever. And he gives us a timetable of this defeat. This happens in two stages. First, The first stage in verse 23 each in his own time, was what we celebrate today. It was the beginning point of death coming to death, of Jesus defeating death for himself. But in that, he only, not only defeated death for himself, but opened the doorway for anyone who believes in him to also defeat death. But then he talks about his second coming. For we know that Jesus is coming again And when he comes, in the end, at that time, everything was going to be defeated. Death will finally be defeated forever and ever and ever. Sin will be defeated forever and ever and ever. And Satan will be defeated forever and ever and ever. Jesus is rendering obsolete and impotent those powers of evil that are set against humanity. Today we celebrate, even though death is still present... Death is going to die. Sin, death, and Satan reign. And we see the effects. We live in the effects of this dead, decaying world. We struggle with cancer. We walk through addictions. We walk through life hurts. We get angry. We get depressed. We get anxious. We live in the terrible consequences of sin. But those who are in Christ, we have the blessing of knowing that, that God is at work through Christ in defeating these enemies that are before us. But he doesn't do it instantaneously. Right? There's purpose in suffering. For in suffering, we know that God promises that he is with us and walk with us through seasons of suffering. You know, I've always found that it, it interesting that when you walk through suffering, it's easier to walk through suffering when you know the outcome. Right, like right now, I can go back and relive um, the, the Lions' um, season from this last year. Right, I, can, I can walk again for the first seven weeks of the, of the season and know the Lions are one in six. And you know what? I'm like, you know what? That hurts. But you know what? It's going to be okay because I know it's coming. I can even sit through Thanksgiving dinner again and watch them lose on Thanksgiving day yet again. And not be defeated. Why? Because I know what happens. I know they end up nine and eight. And I know they beat the Packers two times. And they keep the Packers from going to the playoffs. Amen? I know it. So I can go back. And I'm like, it's no big deal. I know. And though they haven't yet won the Super Bowl, which that's coming. That's coming. Maybe this is not the year. Maybe. Right, Darrell? (laughs) Yeah, you know. Yeah, and maybe this is the year. I don't know. But it's easy to go through suffering when we know the outcome. And that's what Jesus is showing us. He is at work defeating everything. Everything that stands in your way of knowing God is, is coming to an end. The problem is, is that sometimes the giants that we face in our lives We pick up the sword and we're like, I gotta defeat these giants. And right now in your life, you're tired. You're worn out because you've been trying to defeat the giants yourself. And what God has promised us through Christ is he tells us, put the sword down. Stop fighting, surrender, trust. Trust that God is fighting your battles for you, that Jesus is on the throne but Jesus is also working to put to death, death, sin, shame, all of those things. He is putting it to an end. And even in your life today, the power of the resurrection says that God is near to you. He knows you. And he knows your pain. And he's at work. Lastly, Jesus' victory means that all things will be reconciled to God the Father. Look at me in verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. I don't have time to fully explain this passage, but what Paul is getting to is when Christ resurrected, he opened the door for a greater blessing for heaven and earth to be reconciled. That's what he did. That which was broken in Adam, that which was broken in sin because of sin has the opportunity to be reconciled. It can happen and it is happening and Jesus is in the process of doing that. That's why Jesus told us to pray. He says, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? That's the prayer is that we want what's happening in heaven here because that's what we really need. Like if I were to ask you today, like what do you really need? What's the need of your heart? Some of you might say, I need money. I, I need better finances. Some of you are like, man, I wish I need a new marriage. I need new kids. God, can you give me different kids? Like then I'll be happy. Like some of your parents are like, Amen. Maybe, maybe you're here and you're like, I, I need a better job. I need a bigger house. I need a faster car. And when I get those things, then I'll be happy. And, and, and I want you to know that all of those things give false promises. All of those things are fading. All of those, none of those things are eternal. Nothing in this life is eternal. And so if we're giving ourselves over to these false hopes, no wonder we sit around all depressed and anxious. Right? Because trusting in the wrong thing trusting in things that can't give. You know what your greatest need is? Your greatest need is peace with God. That's your greatest need. The God of the universe whom you are accountable to, right now, apart from Christ, you stand as an enemy of God. But Christ has come to bridge the gap between a holy God and sinful man. And so your greatest need is reconciliation between the Father, and that's exactly what Jesus is in the process of doing. Not only reconciliation with the Father. Through Christ, we can call him Abba, Father, and he calls us and adopts us as sons and daughters. But he also promises reconciliation in our life currently. He has the power because of the resurrection. He can take things that are broken and mend them. Reconciliation can happen because it's a work of Christ. Jesus is working to reconcile all things. That means that in Christ, your past can be reconciled. That means in Christ, your marriage that's on the brink can be reconciled. That means that in Christ, any divisions or any difficulties you have in human relationships that cause pain in your life, God has the power in Christ to reconcile them. But what we must do is surrender it. Instead of trying to fix everything and try to fix everyone, bring everything and everyone to Christ at his feet. For he is a reconciling God. So today, as we get ready to end our time together through worship, I want to give you this opportunity. I don't don't know how the Spirit has been stirring in your heart, but the stirring that you feel in your heart is not to be denied. Don't just say, okay, that's for someone else for another time, or I'll deal with this another time, another day. No, be sensitive to the moving of the Spirit today because the power that is in the resurrection is for us to experience life and to not have to feel defeated by the things of this world, and to know that we can be reconciled in this world because we have the promise of all of that in the future. Today, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I encourage you to come before him, call on the name of the Lord for salvation. But for some of you, your response today is once again coming to the place of surrender. Put down the sword, stop fighting, and allow the Lord to win the battles. Stop trying to fix, stop trying to repair, but allow the Lord to have space to work in the places that need his hope. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that Jesus is alive. We thank you that he is not in the grave, but that he is right now seated at the right hand of the Father. We thank you, Father, that you have done all the work and you are doing the work to save us and to put to death death and to fix all that which is broken. So Father, I pray you continue that work. Father, I pray that you help us respond today however you want us to, however you've been stirring in our hearts, may we respond. Give us voices of worship, for you are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
0: Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family.